This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. about 33 hours away from officially being Black Friday, although we know it's already started big time online. But if you want to really, really experience Black Friday, you got to get on your walking shoes. Sarah Halzak is retail columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. This is one of her busy times of the year. She joins us on the phone from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Sarah, great to have you here with Jason and myself. So tell us a little bit about Black Friday, because we've been talking all week about how it's already started. It had started, I feel like, for a few weeks already when it comes to online um, emails that we've all been getting. For sure. Uh, Black Friday has definitely become a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and so uh, a lot of deals started as early as November 1st um, from some of the major retailers. But this weekend is still critically important for the industry. Uh, 165 million people are projected to shop between Thanksgiving Day and Cyber Monday, um, and many of them will get an outsized portion of their annual revenue uh, from this November to December stretch, and uh, Black Friday will be a, a key day to do that. Well, and Sarah, one of the things you break down in your column that I really like is maybe some generational misperceptions that we have about how people like to shop. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think our perception is that uh, Gen Z has their face in their phones all day long, and probably <laughs> their idea of Black Friday shopping is going to be swiping and tapping in their jammies on the couch. Um, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, a lot of data shows that Gen Z shoppers like stores for all the same reason as us old folks do. Uh, they like to touch and feel a product and or try it on, in the case of clothing, before they buy it. And for them, it's a really social experience. Um, when we look at uh, data about this long holiday weekend from Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday, the group that is most likely to say they're going to shop with family and friends in stores is actually Gen Z. And so for them, this is really a social experiential event, uh, a reason to uh, get out of the house and do something with loved ones. This is an important point in your story. And just to kind of reiterate, Jason, of course, bringing it to everybody's attention, but as you say, crucially, it is younger shoppers, the most coveted demographic group for retailers who are most likely to say that they'll be joined by family and friends for their in-store shopping over the long holiday weekend. I mean, I do think there is something to be had about like finding a bargain but I do agree that it is social just kind of walk the streets of New York and I agree I see a younger generation they're out there and it is you know with friends and so on and so forth it's a social thing it is. It's really a ritual. You know, mm-hmm. I've been now out, out seven years in a row reporting on Thanksgiving evening and or Black Friday. And anecdotally, that tracks ex- ex- very much with what I see. Uh, it's very rare that you see someone who's just laser focused on checking boxes on their <laughs> their yeah. shopping list. Um, what I see is moms and dads with a baby in their, the front of their shopping cart, groups of teens who are so eager to escape their parents, uh, maybe even, you know, uh, groups of young adults who've had a little too much eggnog and are... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, joining together for uh, some, some late night Thanksgiving shopping fun. Um, you really do tend to see people out there in groups and doing this as something uh, as a family or as a social event. And so, Sarah, you also point out that the retail experience has really changed as well. It is far from analog, as you say. 
and and stores have really invested pretty heavily. You've written about this in sort of this experiential approach. So folks are showing up and maybe expecting a little bit more from stores as well. They are. And so I think a lot of retailers have invested in customer service, you know, and trying to allocate their labor at the right times of day to make sure that uh, lines are moving quickly and that people are being helped. I think they're also trying to um, allocate their labor with an eye toward the fact that their stores are becoming hubs for their e-commerce operations Mm -hmm. as well. So Target is a good example of a chain that does a lot of its uh, online shopping fulfillment from its stores. Last year during the holiday quarter, 75% of its online orders were picked in in stores. And so uh, that's a sort of interesting operational and logistical challenge that they have to deal with, making sure that they're having workers who are fulfilling those orders in a timely fashion while also uh, interacting with those in-store shoppers. It's and- a win-win, I feel like, for a brick and mortar, right? That you go online, like I've done it, like you go online, you order, and you're like, I'm going to pick it up in the store. And then while you're in the store, you go shopping. Like it is <laughs> a great way of kind of doubling the impact. That's exactly right. Uh, in the industry, it's known as attachment spend, but in theory, they're going to, once they get you in the door to pick up that online order. My husband calls it unnecessary spend, but go ahead. <laughs> attachment also spend. A, I love also that. Also a good name for it, um, but they're hoping to get you to spend another 25 to $40 just because some display catches your eye or uh, one of their promotions uh, seems to be a, a good value. And the other thing that's important about this hybrid model, the click and collect model, is that it's more profitable than the version of online shopping where they have to ship something to your doorstep, right? So when you're doing the hard work of driving to the store and effectively subsidizing last mile delivery for them, that's a better transaction for them from a margin perspective as well. All right. Well, it's a great column and really gives us a sense of what to expect over the next 48 to 72 hours. We know you'll be out there and about. Uh, Sarah, looking forward to catching up with you next week and getting all the details. Sarah Halzak is retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from our bureau in the nation's capital. Are you you headed out? No, I'm not a Black Friday shopper. I don't do it either. And and I don't do it after the holidays either. I feel like it's the last time I want to be in a store surrounded by a million people. Yeah. Digging through stuff. Yeah. I I feel like we do a pretty good job avoiding it. We're going to be down in Atlanta, and there are a lot of malls around there. Uh, Will you go shopping or no? Eh, Maybe a little little bit. bit. Maybe a little bit. But there's a lot of good college football on. You know, some bourbon to be drunk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some bourbon to be drunk. There you go. That's going to be Jason's weekend. Oh, worry, worry, worry. A little BB King. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, Investors totally, though, not loving uh, the latest quarterly financial update from Deere and Company. Stocks selling off as the company missed estimates. Also, it's outlook disappointing. So let's get more from Bloomberg Intelligence Industrials Analyst Christopher Cialino. He is on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So, Chris, nice to have you here with us. What went wrong for Deere this past quarter? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, The quarter really wasn't that bad. Um, It was really the 2020 outlook that was disappointing. um, And we think that probably has some conservatism built in it. Um, It could also be the case of you have a new CEO uh, who's taken the helm less than a month now, just setting a low bar um, and taking a very cautious approach given the uh, persistent trade uncertainty and some of the challenging uh, crop conditions that farmers are facing. And so, Chris, remind us what sort of bellwether uh, deer is and sort of where we look at it, because obviously there's a read into ag, there's a read into general industrial spending, there's a read into global trade even. Uh, Set the stage for us. 
Yeah, they are predominantly an ag equipment company. Um, They do have a construction business, which has grown. Um, They bought Verkin, which is a a road uh, building uh, equipment manufacturer a few years ago. So that has become a bigger piece of their pie. Um, But at the end of the day, it's ag equipment and what moves the needle for deer, particularly on the large, high-horsepower ag equipment. So is this just a one- or two-quarter problem, or what kind of visibility do we have on this one? Uh, visibility is limited, to yeah. say the least. Um, we've kind of seen this throughout the years that uh, you've had just heightened uncertainty given the, the trade backdrop. It seems uh, maybe one step forward, two steps back. Um, that has been a factor, uh, but I'd also point out you have weak farm fundamentals. You have still kind of historically low crop prices, which at the end of the day, um, are, are one of the bigger drivers for ag equipment demand. You have excess crop inventories globally. You have a little bit of an inventory problem. Um, throw in some African swine fever. It's kind of a, a whole host of issues plaguing the sector, but trade is really at the forefront. Well, and what's interesting is, like, I try to get my head around this um, because I feel like we constantly talk about the world is getting bigger and bigger, developing economies are getting more developed, and there's bigger demands when it comes to food in general. So I would just assume that this is a boom for Deer and Company and, you know, some of its brethren. So what's going on here? Yeah, the long-term fundamentals are still very attractive, um, as you alluded to. Uh, you do have a growing global population, um, especially in the middle class which tends to consume um, more protein in their diets, which is all very positive for um, uh, ag commodities and equipment demand. Um, We've just had a a number of years of really good growing conditions. So farmers have been able to plant fence row to fence row uh, this year being the aside, but now we're kind of impacted by the trade. Um, so there is, the, the long-term drivers are still intact. Uh, we do see the, that um, once we get some kind of stability on the macro front being a key driver moving forward, the fleet age is the oldest it's been in a decade. So there's definitely a lot of pent-up demand out there. It's more of these ancillary macro-type issues that have really been the overhang. And so, Chris, what do we look for next from these folks? What could make investors feel a little bit better? Are they going to have to wait for data directly from the company? Is this something where if there's some sort of trade resolution, this is a name that people get a little more enthusiastic about? What happens? The, yeah, the trade headlines uh, always tend to be kind of a boost to sentiment. Um, but as far as actually seeing some kind of acceleration in equipment purchases, we tend to have a little bit more of a, a cautious view there. Um, just because we reached some kind of potential trade agreement, um, there's still a lot of other factors out there that we think is going to keep demand somewhat kind of muted here in the near term. Um, a lot of our uh, ag crops are one of our largest exports. A lot of that goes to China. Uh, Brazil has picked up, uh, really supplanted us. So I think that that demand doesn't automatically snap back if we do reach some kind of tentative agreement. Um, and like I said, you still have crop prices that are pretty low and weak farm fundamentals that are still going to be an overhang in the near term. And let's remind everybody that before this release, the stock of deer had been up um, more than 18%. So disappointment, you know, it's not surprised to see investors take it down a little bit because, you know, the, <laughs> these stocks become priced for perfection. All right. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Chris Chiolino. 
is industrials industrials analyst, easy for me to say, for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. Petty. I like that. Well, Tom Petty, very cool. Um, you and I were just talking. This was a story in the Bloomberg that caught both of our attention uh, when we were reading in this morning about the $30 trillion treasure trove that has remained largely unregulated. We're talking about green investments, how that's about to change, especially with overseas regulators. Let's get some thoughts, though, on the world of ESG and sustainable investing. Perfect person to do that with. Erica Karp is back with us. She's chief executive officer, founder of Cornerstone Capital Group. It's a firm focused on ESG and sustainable investments. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to see you. It is a pleasure to be here. So I do want to start with this story because I did find it interesting um, that we're talking about, you know, when it comes to green investing, there there isn't necessarily a lot of transparency or metrics to say, is this green investment similar to this one? How do we define it? We need some oversight. We do, actually. Well, it, sometimes it's not even oversight. It's just clarity of language. One thing that's critical to understand is ESG is not investing per se. ESG analysis, that's a thing. And you use that to do better investing. So I would suggest there's no such thing as green investing. There is such a thing as great uh, analytical work and a, a lens for sustainability. So how has that lens gotten more sophisticated as it were like what are you doing what are you guys specifically doing what's the market doing to really make it to use a very technical term a thing right right. (laughs) that's that's a great question um it's for it to be a thing for people to realize that this is a, a critical part of any investment analysis we do need better data but we're getting there so we're starting to see a more uh systematic uh disclosure of ESG data by corporations. So we're getting there. And then in terms of it becoming more sophisticated, uh, people are realizing that the idea of just screening out kind of bad extractive practices and, and goods, it's way more complicated than that. That's a start, but we've gotten way past that now. Well, it's interesting, too, and I do wonder if, you know, this story on the Bloomberg um, that caught our attention is talking about the European Union specifically and how they are looking at this and how the U.S. is kind of absent from the debate in terms of regulation over Mm -hmm. benchmarks. I know you don't like the word green, but for green finance around the world. And I do wonder, you know, if the EU is going to kind of set the the trend here or or get it kicked off. And maybe that's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. Yeah. So if we're talking about um, climate disclosures, the fact that Europe is getting serious about this, it's wonderful. You have to remember that all we're talking about here is is risk-adjusted returns. When it comes to sustainable or impact investing, it is the systematic analysis of environmental, social, and governance work. Right. Right? And so the risk is massive. We're talking about um, assets, global assets at risk, financial assets, on the order of between 10 and 24 trillion dollars. We said 30 trillion here in this story. It very well could be because we're talking about a kind of an economic uh, vicious cycle. Right. You know, I mean, think about it. If an asset has um, value destroyed because of a climate um, episode, well, that asset may serve as collateral for lending. Right. And so that collateral loses value. The loan loses value. 
right? And then the ability to lend from a financial so institution loses this value. This isn't just about doing kind of the right thing, right? In terms of either protecting the environment or making sure you have a diverse workforce. You're saying that there's also that financial risk, that if you are exposed to some of these various ESG factors or whatever, it could result in a business impact. This is about business. This is about investing. And one day, you know, the, the analysis of ESG factors, material factors that go into profit outcomes will be mandatory. Like we're seeing with the insurance One company, day. right? Yeah. The insurance industry, yes. big time, because yeah. of climate change. It's still going to take some time, yeah. yeah, but it's coming. So I want to go back to something you said and ask you to look at it through the lens of sort of your some of your previous work. You, you ran global research for UBS. Like you understand it better than most, almost anyone, sort of how important sort of the inputs are to sort of creating models and, and things like that. And so much of it does rely on disclosure from companies. Mm -hmm. As you look across the E, the S, and the G, where are they best? Where are companies sort of making the most progress there? So the, um, arguably the E is kind of the easiest one. It's the most visible. Yeah. Um, the governance, that that's always been looked at. I think it's being scrutinized more yes. closely now. The S is the tough one, right? you know, but the S is so critical. And by the way, they all touch each other, sure. you know? And so when you analyze companies and when you analyze asset managers, which is what we do all day long, right. you have to know what questions to ask by sector, by company, and then think about the, the magnitude. So give us a, an example of a question you might ask on the social side. Okay, so let's say we're talking to a manager, uh, an asset manager who's looking at companies in the, um, the hotel yeah. and transport industry, all right? I would be asking those companies, um, what, what's going on with your kind of um, uh, supply chain and your, um, your vendors and your restaurants and your hotels with regard uh, uh, to potentially human trafficking, Interesting. to potentially sexual and gender-based violence, right? Uh, to potentially to issues of diversity, uh -huh. which are critically important. So you have to ask those questions. Uh, transparency, accountability, incentivization, consistency, those are all things you would ask a company uh, if you want to understand whether or not they are sustainable. I do right. wonder if we get to a point where there's, I don't know, 20 questions, 30 questions, right? Among these different factors. And, you know, think about what we do with restaurants. We do ratings. So you get there and you see the rating and you're like, yes, no, <laughs> you know, right off the bat, there's transparency. You and know. I do wonder, can we get to the level we should get to the level when it comes to publicly held companies, all companies, yeah. but certainly publicly held. I think we can. And by the way, you never in New York go to a restaurant where the, um, the rating is pending. That's like the worst. Yeah. Okay. So you, you know that. So when, when it comes to ESG data, we are looking for um, we're looking for a momentum, momentum in improving ESG data. That's very good. That might be better than a snapshot of some company that does look sustainable, but is deteriorating. Right. The truth is, a skilled asset manager knows what questions to ask based on the sector and the company. It doesn't have to be a million questions. It doesn't have to be disclosure of stuff that is, frankly, irrelevant yeah. to investment outcomes. All right, great stuff. Really good to catch up with you. Erica Karp, CEO of Cornerstone Capital Group, based here in New York City, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, well, I think it's 
fair to say this is one of our favorite stories related to Bloomberg Business Week this week. We got a chance to catch up with the author earlier as we were taping our weekend show. So check out that conversation and that fine piece of television and radio that will be yes. airing this week. But a it's great perfect. conversation we'll that we had. Thanksgiving exactly. meals. Exactly. Just settle in, you know, watch like you're done week. watching football. Yeah. Well, watch a little Business Week. Get smart. Totally. Uh, speaking of getting smart, he always makes us smart. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. His story, it's available online, is about a Democratic strategist with a novel take on fighting what she perceives as misinformation and kind of going toe-to-toe in the digital world with the GOP. So, Josh, tell us about Tara McGowan. So Tara McGowan is a 33-year-old Democratic strategist, comes out of the digital world, and is, is, for my money, the most interesting strategist operating on the Democratic side right now for a couple of reasons. One is she's gained a reputation as a kind of Cassandra, uh, you know, warning loudly that Democrats are going to blow it if they don't uh, pay more attention to social media where Republicans and President Trump are beating them by all sorts of metrics. Uh, but what I write about in Business Week is uh, part of the new plan she has to combat that, and that is to launch a for-profit media company uh, called Courier Newsroom that is going to, or has already begun publishing digital newspapers in six swing states that are meant to essentially uh, woo voters over to a Democratic point of view by publishing what appear to be news articles, but that focus on issues that Democrats care about and help to push back against what McGowan thinks is the conservative propaganda campaign that you see in a lot of Facebook uh, web and news sites that has really had a palpable effect on voting outcomes in states Democrats need to win. So it's a very interesting experience. She's She's raised about 25 million dollars from wealthy uh, tech-centric liberals to launch this. So it's a sort of a fascinating of-the-moment experiment in money and politics and social media. So, um, Josh, how do we see this? Is it more propaganda just on the Democratic side, or is it real news? Well, you know, I spent months reading what they've been publishing. And to be perfectly blunt, it's not propaganda. I mean, these are local news stories along the lines of what you'd read in ordinary but fast disappearing small town newspapers, things covering, you know, environmental policy in the state or state government or, you know, putting a local spin on national stories, that sort of thing. Part of McGowan's contention is that there are entire swaths and geographies of people who no longer have a local newspaper because they're they're rapidly disappearing. And so to kind of fill in that news gap, they've been turning to Facebook and not necessarily getting facts. What she is hoping to do is to resupply those facts through a democratic lens, but with the belief that by publishing this stuff and by paying Facebook to push a lot of her articles to targeted populations of voters, that she will, in the end, be able to sway them over to the Democratic side and and actually get them to turn out and vote for Democratic candidates. And that's what I think is key, right? As you say, it's, it's, it's real news, but she is tapping into what we now know is the influence of big tech, in particular, whether it's Google or Facebook, right, that have tons of data on all of us so she can target and her organization can target these stories. I mean, the goal is create some social media velocity here. You know, exactly. And what was what was so fascinating about the Trump campaign in 2016 in hindsight was that he was essentially native to digital media and his team spent, 
you know, millions of dollars and a lot of effort reaching people, persuading people, activating people on Facebook, um, you know, doing things like building custom audiences that, that, that ordinary marketers do for consumer products. Trump applied that to the political realm, and it worked. And McGowan's complaint for Democrats is that they aren't doing this, too. So now she is. One other factor here I think is worth thinking about is just in the last month or so, we've seen Twitter ban political advertising. We've seen Google come out and say we're not going to allow targeted political ads of the kind that candidates and campaigns like to run. And we know that Facebook is considering something similar. That is going to have a hugely disruptive and limiting effect on the political process. But McGowan's Courier Newsroom project it actually gets through a loophole because technically it is a for-profit media company, right. and it won't be subject to those limitations. So she'll still be able to micro-target these voters, even if other politicians and campaigns aren't. 30 seconds left. Josh, do you expect more people are going to essentially get into this business knowing how critical the digital information flow is in big elections now? You know, it'll be interesting to see. I expected that to happen right in the wake of Trump's victory, and yeah. for the most part, it really hasn't. Part of the reason that McGowan is launching this, she's also launching a $75 million super PAC focused on digital, is that she didn't feel like Democrats were alert to the danger of not moving forward in this area. So we'll have to see, but certainly she hasn't been shy about rolling out some very interesting projects. Well, and certainly a big uh, sort of first mover advantage in many ways, at least uh, on the left. Josh Green, always a treat. Thank you so much. National correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. Check out his story. It's a must read. It's on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I was going to say it's a must read, and then you can check out my bourbon pralines recipe. I mean, not my recipe, but courtesy of Alex Harris. You tweeted it Those out. Those two things you have to read. I See, I listen to you. You I said know. share. I appreciate just because I want the world to have the best information. Sharing is caring, and is. that's what we're about here at Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking about it since the top of our broadcast about Jeffrey the Giraffe. Toys R Us. It is back in New Jersey. Uh, this story featured at Bloomberg Checkout. It's a web section dedicated to consumerism and technology. You can read this story and others at Bloomberg.com slash checkout. Donald Moore is U.S. consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Toys R Us, it is back after bankruptcy. Remind everybody, right? We're talking about the bankruptcy filing. Was it a couple of years ago? Yeah, this was 2017 to declare bankruptcy. And he tried to find a buyer. He couldn't find it. So then he just began closing all the stores. This was early 2018. So this is the first store since they started closing. And it's a different sort of store. I mean, I think we yes. think about Toys R Us, you know, being these massive sort of big box stores. This is in a fancy mall, smaller footprint. But it seems like this could be the future of Toys R Us. Yeah. So that, like the huge aisles everyone remembers are gone. So everything here is kids height. And instead of long aisles with huge shelves, they have these spaces that are rented out by brands. So you have a Paw Patrol area. You have a uh. LOL Dolls area. You have a Nerf area. You have a Nintendo area. So there's spaces for every type of kid, basically. I think it's brilliant because I think about going when my daughter was younger and she'd be like in her stroller. And man, if we were ever at anything near her height, like in a store, <laughs> like it would just get pulled in. Mm-hmm. So it's really smart to be catering to kids, right? And make it the other thing I think which is really crucial in terms of retail, Jason, you and I have been talking about a lot, is the idea of an experience. And they're creating experiences for kids and families. Yeah. So everything here is about doing stuff instead of just seeing stuff. So there's a huge treehouse in the middle of the store. Like kids can climb up it, go to stairs, they can ring a bell once to reach the top. There's area to play with Legos and like dynamic sand. There's a movie theater where kids can watch movies. They have a a program for like every day of the week. So it's really about 
things you can do instead of just buying stuff here. Right. And so this is part of a plan. There are going to be, what, about 10 of these around the country? Yeah. So this is the first one. There's one opening in the Galleria in Houston next yeah. week. And they hope to have, um, including those two, they have hoping to have 10 by the end of next year. Wow. Yeah. Who owns the company now? So this is True Kids. This is a holding company. They okay. bought Toys R Us. They bought Babies R Us, the Jeffrey, the Giraffe brand. So it's a new holding company now that's reviving the brand. We'll have to see because, right, last Christmas we did without Toys R Us and you had mm-hmm. Amazons and others. We talked with Matt Boyle about even Best Buy, yeah. you know, starting to sell traditional mm-hmm. toys. So it'll be interesting to see if they can do a bit of a comeback. Yeah, definitely. Um Competition from online brands, like they left the void, and then you have Amazon swooped in. You have right. Target, yeah. Walmart, even grocery stores now. Some of them are selling um, toys. So it's interesting to see whether they can regain their mojo in a way. Well, well and I love that Amazon actually printed a toy catalog. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is like those of us who have kids or were kids, I mean, I love going to a toy store. I mean, yeah. it's such a, you know, sort of visceral, tactical, uh, tactile experience. Uh, it's a great story. We know you're going to be busy this weekend. Uh, Donald Moore, U.S. consumer reporter for Bloomberg, with the scoop on the new look Toys R Us. I love this story. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do the drive to the close here. A lot of traffic out there on a Thanksgiving day, but comfortably ensconced in Summit, New Jersey. That's where we find David Dietz. He is president and chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management, looking after about $6.6 billion. Happy Turkey Day Eve, David. Same to you, Jason. Thank you. All right. Well, great to have you back with us. So, Let's take stock, as it were, of where we are. And as we head into, you know, sort of a longish weekend, although the markets are going to be open for a bit on Friday, how are you feeling about this market? So we certainly have a lot to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving Eve. We've got the low interest rates. Yields are less than stocks. That's driving continued inflows into stocks. It looks like we've sidestepped the domestic recession. We just got the latest uh, um, numbers on the the second reading on uh, third quarter GDP was higher at 2.1%. Federal Reserve's on pause after cutting the interest rates three three times. But nevertheless, you know, Jason, um, with uh, a really strong November here, there are some reasons, at least near term, to be cautious. Uh, For example, the VIX, which is, you know, that fear gauge that's moved down from over 20 just six weeks ago to under 12. You know, some of the indexes have had eye-popping returns this year. For example, NASDAQ now up over 30% year-to-date, up 4.3% this month. That doesn't go on uh, forever. Another metric which looks at risk on, risk off, has moved into the 95th percentile of historic readings, which means rarely have investors been so bullish. So those are some reasons to be cautious, despite the backdrop of a relatively positive economy and interest rate environment. I know, but I feel like, David, you know, go back over the last few years and we keep 
keep thinking, okay, it's time to come to an end. You know, this market cycle, this economic cycle, and yet here we are. And I do wonder about the rapidity in terms of how news kind of works its way through the financial markets. We react, we sell off, and then we bounce back. And so I do wonder what's what's going on? What's different? Should we not believe these levels right here? Do the fundamentals not justify it? Well, you know, certainly... Um, the trade talks have been a major factor, and now it does seem like the stars are aligning for at least a phase one, Carol. Um, and certainly, I think politically, the White House wants to win in the book uh, as it comes into the election 2020. I think China's growth is slowing. They're still growing rapidly, but also slowing. And so I think they want to um, uh, make some sort of an agreement. And I think that is bolstering uh, investor sentiment. But then, of course, the question is how much is priced in in terms of a phase one? And if it's actually announced, what do investors do? Maybe they've bought on the rumor. They may take some profits on the news. All right. So let's talk about a couple names. As I'm looking at some of your picks here, I go to, you know, probably this time tomorrow, people, you know, cracking a cold one, sitting down, watching some football. Molson Coors is a name that you like. Why? So, you know, it's the second largest uh, beer distributor in the country with about a one-third market share. Um, it also has big operations in Canada and Europe. Um, they have a large percentage of uh, luxury beers as opposed to economy beers. You've got the Blue Moon, of course. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of been stuck in the mud as people have questioned how much consumers are going to continue to drink beer in the wake of alternatives, including hard seltzer, things along that uh, nature. But nevertheless, with this low interest rate environment, I actually think it's a potential takeover play. I mean, companies like LMVH have been uh, borrowing for less than 1%, just took over Tiffany. You know, might have a Diageo or or even uh, um, an, an Anheuser InBev that decides to make a play for uh, a Molson Coors. You've got a good dividend over 4.5%. And I think in some ways it's less exposed to what's going on with the China trade negotiations. I think this could be a nice defensive holding here. David, are you saying Coors is like Tiffany? <laughs> well, you know, I think that uh, alcoholic beverage is kind of like the poor man's luxury good. So uh. in some ways, not something that you necessarily need, but definitely from time to time you want. What you're thinking about Wells Fargo? Now, Charlie Scharf, now the new president and CEO, uh, he's a different type. You were waiting of... for that. You were waiting for it, David. <laughs> we kept pressing you on yes. why you were hanging on to uh, WFC, but now you got your guy. Well, exactly. And the stock has moved up from the mid-40s to about 54, just shy of a 52-week high. You still have that over uh, 4% dividend yield, which is nicer. But I do think that next year we could see higher interest rates if we have indeed skirted a recession. Um, and that certainly is going to help banks, all banks, uh, make a better spread between what they pay out for deposits and what they get for loans. I also like the fact that we're long in the tooth in terms of the economic side. Cycle. Wells has a history of prudent underwriting, and I think that's a positive. I love their retail branch structure, coast-to-coast, um, -coast, which gives them tremendous efficiency in terms of uh, promotion. They've got a great wealth management division and so forth, and that doesn't is not hurt by markets being at record levels. So, you know, I think that Wells is something that would be a good defensive position should interest rates move higher and people move away from, you know, utilities and retail and other defensive holdings. All right. So 
30 seconds. What's the sector uh, that you're most excited about for the balance of the year or a name? Well, that's a, that's a short period of time. You know, one that I would cite is Carnival Cruise, which is about okay. 11 times earnings. It's the largest in the cruise industry. You got a 4.5% dividend. And certainly, if uh, we continue to see record highs in the markets, more people may want to take a cruise. And of course, if there's some sort of relaxation with overall um, trade uh, disputes, I think that will bode well. And of course, as the weather gets colder, more people think about selling themselves on a nice deck, perhaps also with the most cool. Brew. Not right. to mention, too, the stock's down about 15% from that yeah. June high. So we've certainly seen the stock beaten, beaten up a little bit. All comes together. All right. David Deeds, President, Chief Investment Strategist for Point View Wealth Management, looking after about $6.6 billion, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.